Welcome to Bethany. This is our online service for April 12th, 2020. It's Easter Sunday. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is the Sunday where we specifically gather together to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're new to Bethany, I want to encourage you to check out our website. There you'll find all sorts of resources to connect with us, maybe to get prayed for, maybe to even request assistance during this time of great need in our world. Also, want to thank you, those of you who are generously giving to the ministry of Bethany. We are so blessed by your gifts. That's how Bethany survives. We survive by the grace of God and the gifts of his people. And we just want to encourage you to continue to support the great work that the Lord is doing here. Now let's celebrate Christ this morning as we worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for sending him as a sacrifice for our sins, Lord, that we might go free, that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored to you, Lord. But we thank you so much that that sacrifice that he made didn't leave him in the grave. But that three days later, he rose and he is alive today. And because of that, we have hope. Because of that, we have joy. Because of that, we have assurance of our future. We thank you, Lord. We pray that our worship would be acceptable to you this morning, that it would be glorifying to you, and that it would build us up as your people. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's worship together. One, two, three, four. Good morning, church. He is risen. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Let's sing together. He is risen.
blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the death we could never
Nothing lasts forever, does it? Now, I'm a, I'm a dreamer. I'm a builder. I like to see things that are worn out or, or tired or need some love, need some repair, need some fixing. And I like to pour myself into that and actually try to fix it. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm good at it. That doesn't mean that everything that my hands touch all of a sudden turn to gold. They certainly don't. There have been so many times where I've tried to work on something and it's gone horribly, horribly wrong, but I enjoy it all the same. And that's why for years and years, I longed to have a house of my own where I could, I could improve it. I could work on it. I could, I could transform it into something better than it was. That day came. That day came late last year, and I was so excited that first day when we moved in. Had the truck pull up, and all the boxes are coming out. But wouldn't you know it, out of all the summer days thus far, this was the summer day that turned into the hot summer day. Everything else had been pretty mellow, pretty mild, but it lit up that day in September, and we were sweating. And what made things worse was that was the day that the air conditioning at the new house decided to quit. Just days before, we had tested it. It worked. We were so excited, and it was done. It was fried. A few hours later, we also found out something else. 
Somebody flushed the toilet and the plumbing backed up all over the place. The, the house was filled with this, this fragrant brown sludge that came pouring out of the tubs and the toilets and onto the floor and under the walls and things were just, it just seemed like they were the worst. Things were falling apart. Nothing lasts forever, does it? And that, that began us on a journey of discovery, trying to figure out what's wrong with the air conditioning, trying to figure out what's wrong with the plumbing, and then trying to figure out how we're going to pay for all of these fixes that needed to happen. I'm happy to say that after several agonizing months, we've got most of it taken care of. Most of it. We're still working on the how are we going to pay for it part, and uh, that is important. But uh, thank the Lord we have uh, a house that is working for us. But as those of you who are homeowners know full well that it's just a matter of time before something else breaks, right? Something else is going to break. In fact, something else has broken. In fact, just last Sunday, after my family and I uh, listened to the church service, uh, I was told that the, the pipes under the sink had, had started leaking, and now we had another flood on our hands. And I spent that afternoon trying to rip everything apart and repair it. That was one of those repairs that didn't go so well, because a couple days later, we found out it was flooded again. And actually, this afternoon, I'll probably work on it a little bit more. Things don't last, do they? They, they, just, they just fall apart. And I know that either I'm going to break it, my kids are going to break it, or it's just going to break on its own. That's reality. And you might say, you know, Jared, that's a really pessimistic view. No, it's not. That's just entropy. That's just life. That's just the way things are in this world. From a biblical perspective, that's the way life in this world goes after it went haywire, when people decided to do things their way rather than God's way. Nothing lasts forever. We're living in a world that's in desperate need of help. It's in desperate need of fixing. It's in desperate need of repair. To be quite frank, it's in desperate need of resurrection. I need it. You need it. The world needs it. Since Genesis 3, everything has been wearing out. It's been fading away. It's been falling apart. Oh, sure, there have been some advancements in medicine and technology and science, but, but none of them has brought the lasting results that we all need. Nothing lasts forever. We seem to be all caught up in this, this seemingly endless cycle of build it, break it, make it, destroy it. Fix it, wreck it, heal it, watch it eventually just give in to death anyway. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes gets all worked up. He says in chapter 1, he says, Vanity of vanities. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He writes, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And you know what he's saying? He's saying that all the work and all the struggle, well, that's just part of an endless cycle here. We work, we sweat, we, we 
have something good to look at now, or maybe we have something nice, pleasant to the ears to listen to, but none of it even satisfies us. So what's the point of it all? Have you ever asked that question? What's the point? Where's the meaning if life, life itself is fleeting? It's just passing away. Like that eight-year-old who asked mom, why do I have to make my bed if I'm just going to have to mess it all up later on? Someone much older and road-worn asks an equivalent question, if death, if death is the end of us all, then why bother playing this game? Does any of this really matter? And my answer to that is, not really. No, it doesn't. At least, not unless Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. You see, everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything depends on whether or not Jesus actually did rise from the dead. The Bible explains that pain, that suffering, that disintegration, slowing down, petering out, rust and decay, and even death that's common to us all, they all started right at the beginning. The Bible wastes no time in telling us how human beings who were made in God's image and made to exist in a perfect paradise, they traded it all for the chance that they might be able to get more. Get more out of life apart from their creator. Get more out of life if only they called the shots. They made the decisions. They decided what was best for them. And from that point in the Bible, we see very, very quickly that everything takes a downward turn. It goes out of whack. It goes out of whack when they chose rebellion over obedience. And not only were they a people now destined to live in a world of of selfishness, of viruses, of natural disasters, of war, but they were actually guilty of something. They were guilty of treason. As the Bible puts it, they had become objects of God's wrath. The sentence for rebellion against an all-good, all-perfect, all-powerful, sovereign, infinite God, that's eternal separation from Him. And if you're going to be separated from Him, well, you're going to be separated from everything that is good. Now, someone might say, how on earth can you call a God good that demands obedience from finite creatures, which he himself is responsible for crafting, and then punishes them when they fail to perform the way he wants them to. Where's, where's the patience in that? Where's the understanding in that? Where's the love that you would expect from an all-powerful, all-good God? And to that I'd ask, well, how can you call God perfectly just if he didn't hold his creatures accountable, if he let things go. You see, I might overlook when one of my daughters throws her food on the floor again 
after I had told her time after time after time, do not throw your food on the floor. And when I do that, when I overlook that, well, I'm displaying grace to her, right? Maybe I'm, my, maybe I'm displaying self-control. I'm controlling my anger and not, and not really lashing out at her. But at the same time, I'm failing at something. I'm failing to exercise justice. And even more than that, I'm actually teaching my daughter something. I'm teaching her that it doesn't really matter if she listens to or obeys her dad. And if I'm teaching her that, well, then I may be teaching her that it really doesn't matter to respect or listen to or regard authority at all. So I'm, I may be winning at one thing, but I'm failing at another. But you know what? God isn't like me. He's perfect. And in his perfection, he has to be, he must be true to every aspect of his character. And so he's, if he's perfectly loving, he has to be true to that. If he's perfectly just, he has to be true to that as well. So for the sake of love and patience... For the sake of, of showing, putting on display his great love, he can't do that at the same time and, and at the same time abandon his holiness. He can't abandon his justice or his perfection. What's incredible is that his declaration of, of judgment on humanity at the very beginning at the same time he does that, we see his merciful provision for deliverance. See, God, has, he, he, he's incredible. He's able to show that perfect love and that perfect justice at that same time. The, the Bible tells us that God, in his great love for us, had a plan to set all things right and this wasn't an afterthought. This was something that was planned before the foundation of the world, we read in Ephesians. He hinted at it to Adam and Eve. He promised it would come uh, to, to Abraham, that it would come through Abraham's descendants. And he made it a reality in Jesus. In Jesus. The fix was a simple one. And yet it was one that was completely impossible for human beings to accomplish on their own. For humanity to be made right, to be rescued from the justice that God needed to carry out, to be forgiven their crimes, to be brought back into proper relationship with their creator, to be restored to that paradise lost. Their debt had to be paid. Justice had to be carried out. And God made it clear that there's only one way for sin to be paid for, and that's through the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Justice needed to be carried out. But the great news of hope is that even though justice needed to be carried out, God was going to demonstrate his great love and provide a rescue for humanity. And that rescue came when he sent Jesus Christ to pay our debt on our behalf so that we might be delivered from eternal punishment and might experience eternal life. 
In, in, in one amazing act, he simultaneously demonstrates his perfect justice and his perfect love. And you know, that's why the cross of Christ is so precious to Christians. Though, though it's a gruesome symbol of death, it's become this all-important intersection where God's love allows them to cross over from death to life. Their defiance is brought to justice. At the same time, their lives are shown mercy. But here's the thing. The plan, the hope, the forgiveness, the new life, the restored relationship with God, that all falls apart if the resurrection did not occur. And Jesus rising from the dead, if that's a fantasy if it's just something that his followers invented to, to save face, to save themselves from embarrassment, then none of this matters. I read something recently about uh, the Italian order of Cistercian monks. I wanted to make sure I got that name right. This is a group of Catholic monks who are devoted to silence. They don't speak. No one talks. The only time uh, uh, phrases are uttered from their mouths is when they sing hymns together. Or maybe when they, when they confess sins to each other. But other than that, nothing. They're silent. There's only one exception, and that's the abbot. That's the, the head of that abbey. He's allowed to speak. And on one occasion, this particular ab abbot was interviewed uh, by a television reporter, and he was asked this question. What if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true, that there is no God? Tell me, what if that were true? And the abbot responded by simply saying this. Holiness Silence and sacrifice, those are beautiful in and of themselves. Even without the promise of reward. He said, I still have used my life well. Essentially, what he was saying was that even if all this stuff that I've believed about God, even if that is, that's just hogwash, it's, it's not true. Well, I've still lived a good and enjoyable life. This is still a good way to live your life. Do you agree with that? The Apostle Paul doesn't. In fact, he categorically disagrees. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He says, It's worthless. Paul's saying that the stuff that we believe matters. And not only does it matter that God exists, not only does it matter that Jesus was a real person, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross, but Paul freely admits that it's, that it's also true that unless he rose from the dead, that the resurrection actually happened, then it's all a waste any faith, any religious devotion, any effort to live a good, moral life, it's all a waste. 
Sorry, Mr. Abbott. I'm glad you're satisfied with your life, but I think you could have lived a little bit of a fuller life doing some other things. You, if this, none of this is true, then don't waste your life on those things. If the resurrection of Christ is a fantasy, think about this. If, if it's a fantasy, Jesus is still dead. He's still dead. And if he's still dead, then he certainly wasn't God. See, God's eternal. He cannot die. He has no beginning. He has no end. So Jesus clearly would not fit the description of God if he's still in the grave. And if he's not God, well then, he was a liar. He was a liar. He's not the way, the truth, and the life. He's not God in the flesh. What does he have to offer? He lied to everyone not the savior of the world. And if he was a liar, then you're a fool to look to him for forgiveness. If he's still dead, then for all we know, he's just like any other human being, any any other Joe Schmo on the street and has no authority to forgive your sins, no more than anyone else has. Not only have your sins not been forgiven, But you can kiss the thought of any enjoyable afterlife goodbye. (laughs) Forget about it. If Jesus is still dead, you have no reason to think that he's coming back for you. That he's preparing a place for you. You have no hope of paradise. No future. No purpose. No rewards. no, No righting of wrongs in the world. Have you been wronged in your life? Well, so what? Good luck. You're probably not going to get justice, no ultimate justice, because there's no Jesus who's alive who's going to bring that justice. In fact, if, if God exists and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your biggest problem isn't the injustices that you face by all the others around you. Your biggest problem is God himself. Because if you aren't right with God in the end, you're in trouble. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's no one interceding for you. There's no one speaking on your behalf. You have no reason to believe that Jesus is pleading your case before God the Father, saying, yeah, I know her sins are many, but you know what? I paid for those sins. If Jesus died from, uh, didn't rise from the dead, nothing really matters. Like the old Peanuts cartoon uh, where Lucy reads a a book to Linus. She's not really reading it, I don't think. But she says, says, a man was born, he lived, and he died. The end. That's what it's like. That's all there is. There's, There's nothing more. That's all any of us have is just this one life that we're living. And in the end, we're all gonna return to dust. We all just return back to the place from which we came. And if that's the case, if nothing really matters, nihilism is true, then you might as well do everything you can to enjoy what little life you have left. Because once it's over, it's over. Forget about this code of silence, somehow, you know, having higher morals than the rest of anyone living up there in some monastery. Forget about that. 
Forget about any moral restrictions for that matter. Why don't you just party like there's no tomorrow? You might as well figure out what you enjoy the most and then pursue that thing. Get as much of it as you possibly can. Is it sex? Is it money? Is it, is it, is it power? Is it control? Is it an adrenaline rush? Is it entertainment? Is it physical fitness? Is it that feeling you get when you've created something or you've accomplished something? Go pursue that. Just do that. Just know this. Just know this. Apart from the personal enjoyment you're getting out of it in that moment, none of it matters. You won't even be conscious of it after you're gone. No lasting legacy for you to enjoy. You won't enjoy anything. You're, you're, you're gone. It's over. And that's why Paul essentially says that you should do that. You should do that if there's no resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let's, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. We die. That's a really sad place to be, isn't it? Especially when you consider how uncertain life is these days. I was speaking with someone I met recently. Just this person is absolutely paranoid that either he or his aging elderly father is going to, to get the coronavirus. And why was that, I asked? Well, it's because I came to realize as he was speaking, it's because he doesn't have any hope. He doesn't have any hope that there's anything beyond this life. He's in his mid-50s. He's expected to, to live several more good years, but you know what? That's all taken away now. That's, that possibility could very easily be turned over, and he could lose his life sooner than he had planned, and it'll be over. And he's made a, a lot of money in life. He drives a really nice car. He's, he's had a lot of fun. He's avoided as much responsibility as possible. He's as free as a bird, but what's it all for? What difference does this, this life of his make? And what significance will it all have had when he's gone? It's sad. The preacher wrote, I've, I've seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. That's, that's a pointless exercise. You can't catch it. That's where we find ourselves if Jesus is still in the grave. And for Christians, it's worse, Paul says. Paul says that Christians are the most to be pitied if Christ has not been raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. And we find ourselves right back where the disciples were in the hours after Jesus died. After he was crucified, they were disillusioned. They were depressed. They were wondering, what on earth are we supposed to do now? We're just like them. We're left kicking ourselves for having bought into this rubbish and wasting our lives on wishful thinking. And Paul says that if 
all Jesus brought to us was a, a better way of life here on earth, then it just wasn't worth it. It was all a waste. Why follow Jesus at all? Why take up your cross and follow him? Why live your life in pursuit of honoring God and bringing glory to him? None of it matters anyways. You might as well just go out, seek a life of hedonism, seek a life of pleasure. Because in the end, we're all going to the same place. It's it's all a waste. That's a sad reality. But, but if the resurrection is not a fantasy, if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, well, that changes everything. According to the Bible, which records various cor- correlating eyewitness accounts and, and, and testifies to the reality that there were actually hundreds more, Jesus did, without a doubt, rise from the dead. After having been crucified by the masters of death, these trained professionals who were well acquainted with death and knew exactly what to look for to confirm a person was actually dead, three days later, Jesus stood up and rose to life. The physician's account goes like this in Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And it says, they remembered his words. When the Bible speaks about Christ's resurrection, it makes two things very, very clear. One, that his resurrection was physical And two, that it was permanent. It was physical in the sense that Jesus' body, the body that came back to life, was his actual body. Not only did people recognize him, they had conversations with him. They touched him. They watched him eat. They watched him drink. And when Jesus finally left for his heavenly home, it says he ascended into the heavens. He didn't just disappear like some some spirit vanishes. No, he physically ascended. And in this way, the resurrection reminds us that God's original creation of the physical world, that was and is still good. It's not that God has turned his back on all the, all the physical creation and said, ah, well, that was a mistake. Let's just go spiritual from here on out, fellas. No, no, no. He still is committed to the physical reality he, he created. And that, the evidence of that is in Christ's body that was raised from the dead. You see, Jesus will never be just spiritual again. He now has a forever resurrected physical body. It was physical. Secondly, it was permanent. 
It was permanent. People have been brought back from the dead before. The Old Testament records that on some occasions. The New Testament does as well. Remember Lazarus? Even some medical professionals today have actually revived people whose hearts have stopped beating. Now, it, of course, it's within a very brief period of time after their death. But all of these people, rather, whether they have been miraculously or medically been brought back to life, their bodies have gone on to live for a little while, but then they all died. In other words, the fix didn't stick. It didn't last. But you see, Jesus' resurrection is different. Jesus' resurrection, his resurrected body, is a transformed body. It's a glorified body. And his life, the life he now has, that life is permanent. Once he was raised back to life, that was once and for all. Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He's alive now. Ephesians tells us that God raised him from the dead seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Not only is he physically alive, not only is he eternally alive, he's also taken the throne. And there he sits as sovereign authority over all things for all time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, what does that mean for us? Listen to the words of 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So when we read this, we clearly see Peter bursts out in praise to God for what God has done through Christ. And all of that hinges on the resurrection. Did you catch it? It was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what does Christ's resurrection accomplish for us? I want to just briefly mention three different things, and these things are awesome. First, Christ's resurrection causes us to be born again to a living hope. The Bible tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were without hope, without God in the world. And not only were we wandering through life without purpose or, or any sort of significance, whether we knew it or not, we were at odds with our Creator. We've already talked about that. Our best hope, it was just to enjoy as much of this life as we possibly could because death was coming to us all and with it was going to come this eternal separation from God, from all that is good for all eternity. But Christ's resurrection gives us a living hope. We've been brought from death to marvelous life. There's a, there's a spiritual rebirth that, that takes place inside of us. Romans 6 tells us that when we trust in Christ, our lives are intrinsically united to His. 
And so when we died, our old selves died with him. But when he rose, we rose spiritually with him as well. Even though we're, we're still living here. And for the time being, these wearing out bodies are, are what we've got. Even though that's the case, we've been spiritually born again. And our real life is secured with Christ in his resurrection. Romans 8.10 tells us, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Is your trust in Christ? If so, then you've been born again to a living hope. This earth is not your home. And you've been spiritually raised with Christ. So what do you do? You set your minds not on things that are all around us here. You set your minds on things above. It's so easy to get focused on the here and now, isn't it? To live as if this life is all that there is. To get bogged down and caught up in all the monotony and the meaninglessness. To fall prey to fear and discouragement. Even panic. Remember that because Christ has been raised and your trust is in him, you've been born again to a living hope. That's, that's the first. The second is this. Christ's resurrection ensures your justification. Christ died on the cross for our sins. He took our sins, our guilt upon himself. Our guilt was placed on his shoulders but it was when he was raised that our justification was secure. Now, what is justification? Justification is simply this. It's the declaration that your guilt, that my guilt, has been completely removed. It's a legal term, which just means that the sentence has been served. The condemnation no longer exists. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's because Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did, it shouted loud and clear that what he set out to do, that was accomplished. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, he died for our sins. But it was his resurrection that sealed the deal and proved that the debt we owed for our rebellion, that had been paid. Think about it. If Jesus said that he was going to die on the cross for our sins, and then he remained dead, as long as he remained dead, that sentence still had to be paid. 
He was in the process of paying it as he was dead. As long as he stayed dead, we'd have to to assume that our sins were still being paid for. That sentence was still being carried out on him. But you know what? Jesus didn't stay dead. When God raised him back to life, we knew without a doubt that the work he set out to accomplish, it was finished. His resurrection shouts to all creation that the sins of those who are in Christ, those have been completely paid. The work is finished. Our sins have been paid in full. Nothing more is needed. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he was condemned on our behalf. And if he no longer needs to endure that punishment that we deserved for it, then no longer do we. That's good news. This is one of the incredible realities of the resurrection. How does that make you feel? What difference does that make in your perspective on life. Peter wrote, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The fact that we've been born again to a living hope, that our debt's been paid, and our living Savior is proof of that, that should Fill us with an invincible joy that that cannot be destroyed, even by the hardships that we experience in life. Even in the midst of these challenging circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. Maybe you're struggling with finances. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're struggling with your health. Or you're struggling with the uncertainty of it all. or Or the chaos of trying to work from home and take care of your kids at the same time. Or even just the just the loneliness that you're experiencing. Of not being able to to meet together with the ones that you care about. In the midst of all of that, let the resurrection of Jesus restore in you the joy of your salvation. Christ's resurrection, it causes us to be born again to a living hope and ensures our justification. Finally, let me just share this. Christ's resurrection guarantees your future in paradise. Your future in paradise. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Christ rose from the dead, that promise gained a lot of weight. He said he was going to go prepare a place for me, but now he's dead. Well, wait, now he's alive again. This actually could come true. And when he ascended into heaven, man, I wish I could have seen the disciples' faces as their hearts must have soared with enthusiasm and hope in the great promises that Christ had given them. We already read what Peter said, that through the resurrection, there is an inheritance stored up for us. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled, kept, it's unfading, kept in heaven for you. Because Christ is raised, you have reason to believe that that's all true. It's true that you have a hope and a future. That this life is not all there is. In fact, this life is just a shadow. It's just a shadow of the real one that awaits you there. And that life will never be taken away. It'll never be cut short by plague or by heart disease or by cancer. It will never be upset by quarantine orders. It will never be disturbed by a lack of finances or job losses. It'll never be darkened by the sorrow of, of, of suffering or, or loved ones lost. And it will never be hindered by, by aging, failing bodies. 1 Corinthians 15.21 says... For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that because Christ is now raised and his body has been transformed into this glorious, perfect body, then those who trust in him, they can also be sure that their bodies will also be transformed as well. It says that Christ is the first fruits. What happened to his body, well, that's the evidence of what's going to happen to the rest of all of us who trust in him. Like a farmer takes the first pick of his crop and uses it to determine how the rest of the crop is going to turn out. Jesus is that first pick of the crop. The evidence that what happened to him, the transformation that took place, the new life that was given to his body, that's coming for you as well. Isn't that good news? Paul tells us in Philippians 3, 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Imagine what that's going to be like. Imagine bodies that have never been weathered by a world of sin, that show no wear and tear, that, that haven't been worn out by age, that don't store up unnecessary weight, that have never known nor never will know sickness, pain, suffering, disfigurement, that, that never need checkups, that never need those uncomfortable examinations, teeth that never need braces, that never decay, that never fall out, brains that never get cloudy, eyes that never need glasses, legs that never need crutches. This is the life that Christ's resurrection promises. He was raised physically, he was raised permanently, and so will you and I if your trust is in him. Are you ready for that life? I know I am. Because Christ has been raised, those who trust in him, they've been born again to a living hope. Their justification is sure, and their future in paradise 
is guaranteed. Because Christ has been raised to life, we have been given life. We've been given a living hope. If you don't know that life yet, that living hope, if you don't know if Christ's death and resurrection, that's been applied to your life, you can know that today. Simply turn your eyes to Christ and say, Lord, I, I need you. I know that I'm a rebellious person who's turned away from you and that I'm in desperate need of forgiveness. I'm in desperate need of resurrection. Thank you for paying for my sin on the cross. Thank you for proving that they were paid in full when you rose from the dead. Thank you for the new life that you have secured for me. Wash me clean. Make me yours. I want to let loose the life I once knew and find real life in you. And if you have been raised with Christ, then I want to encourage you to think about something as well. I want to encourage you to live this life in light of that life. The life that he has been given you, that he has given and put inside of you right now, and the life that you have to come. Let's let go of our hopes and dreams of building kingdoms that are just going to crumble like sand, and let's live in all out pursuit of that living hope that Christ's resurrection has secured. Let's endure without being discouraged by plagues that ravage our world or by the darkness that we see growing all around us. Let's rejoice in the glorious reality that Christ has paid our debt. He's paid it in full. The resurrection secures our justification. Let's bask in that light of our wonderful new relationship that, that we, now, we now have with our Creator. And let's leave all the junk behind, right? All the junk of our old rebellious lives. Let's leave that behind and let's start living in preparation for eternity. And as we do, let's sing. Let's sing the song of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank God. May that fill your hearts with joy. May it fill your hearts with hope. May it fill you with confident, joyful, exciting expectation for the life that is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you. You have been so good to us. We certainly don't deserve it. We deserve to be condemned. We deserve to, to, to experience your full justice on our lives. And yet, Lord, you displayed your great love. Your great love and your great justice simultaneously when you sent Jesus Christ to bear our sin on his shoulders as he went to the cross. Thank you for that, Lord. And thank you that his mission was accomplished. We have proof of that. He rose from the dead and he is alive and well 
and, and, and sits on the throne in authority over all things today. And because of that, Lord, we have this incredible hope this incredible confidence that our future is secure, that Christ is coming back, that he actually has done a work inside of us, a transforming work, and he has work that is yet to be done. We will be transformed and we will be like him. And not only will we be like him, we'll be with him in paradise forever. Lord, we thank you. We love you. May those truths bring strength to us. May they fortify us as we walk through these very difficult times in the history of our world. Though things fall apart, though we walk through a valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because we know you are with us and we know that our Savior is risen and we know where we're going. We love you. And pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.